we, we've got some good news, and now I'm going to share with you some of the bad news. When Christians find themselves in conflict, especially uh, Christian leaders, how to deal with it, how to deal with conflict re- regarding the Word of God and truth, the nature of truth. Let's review ourselves just a little bit, because it's been a couple of weeks now. What we did in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, our so great salvation. The apostle says, but when the kindness and love for mankind, remember that uh, philanthropia, the love of man, when the kindness and affection for mankind appeared, which belonged to God, our savior, and this is This is God the Father that he means. And so all three persons of the Trinity are called Savior throughout the New Testament in various places because God is one God in three persons. But when God's kindness, his overlooking our weaknesses and sinfulness, overlooking our our wretchedness, when his kindness and his love, his affectionate love for mankind appeared, not from works and righteousness, which we did, but according to his mercy, main sentence, main clause in the whole thing, he saved us. God saved us. And when did it happen? When his character was on display, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the cross that saves us. It is the work of Jesus Christ to which he is referring. The ultimate demonstration of God's kindness and affectionate love for mankind. And this is not what we did. Remember the contrast, what God did, what we did, what God did, what we did. God showed his kindness we did not bring righteousness or works of righteousness, but rather it's God's mercy. He saved us. And how? He saved us when he applied the work of Jesus Christ to us. When did Jesus Christ apply or when did, the, when did God apply the work of Jesus Christ to us? Some say before you believe, and then that makes you able to believe. And that is, I believe, a logical rationalization And I understand the way one would get to that logical rationalization by claiming that total depravity means that a person is not able to believe. So since a person is completely cut off from faith in total depravity, that means, that would mean, understand in a view I don't hold to, that would mean that you have to have God undepravity you so that you can then be able to believe. And so that's the idea of regeneration before faith. And it's a strong tenet of Reformed theology. I don't hold to it because I don't find that rationalization presented in the text, including in here. But this is how he saved you. The, the, the point is not when he applied the blood of Christ to you. It's, it's how he did it. He's not talking about when, and that's the argument with the Reformed camp. It is how he did it. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and through the renewing by the Holy Spirit. This work of God in applying salvation to you and me is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. So God, the Father, our great Savior, with his kindness and his love for man, saved us by this work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? The washing of regeneration, the new birth, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now again, it doesn't say when you get the new birth. It doesn't say where does faith fall into the the story. It just says that God did it. God saves you. And so when Jesus says your faith has healed you, okay, that's not a contradiction in in the miracles when he says your, your faith has healed you. It means that as far as it depends on us, our humble recognition that God does the work, our faith in him, the absence of our meritorious works, the recognition that only God brings the meritorious work, only God saves that is our faith. And when faith comes is not, I don't think it's a matter of, of mere rational speculation or, or ratiocination or um, logical con- constructs, which is where theology often goes wrong as we reason our way out of the scriptures into something the scriptures don't teach, and then we, we hang on to it. And that's the story of Thomism. A lot of uh, Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas reasons this way. And uh, you end up with things like purgatory and other things that you really, unless you subscribe to extra biblical, extra canonical literature as biblical, you really can't get there. God saved us through the washing of regeneration and, by the, re- and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so the really important thing is to notice that the Holy Spirit 
is the agent who applies our so great salvation to us through the new birth. He borns us again, if you will, when he poured out upon us who, and, and, and also now I believe all people in church history have, and in world history who believe in, in God's promised Messiah receive eternal life and therefore the new birth. And I think the Holy spirit always applies it. And I think he always convicts people of sin and, and righteousness and judgment. I think the spirit has been working all through world history back to Genesis one, two. However, you and I, in this age, this side of the day of Pentecost in AD 33, we are those on whom he has poured out the Holy spirit richly. We have received the Holy spirit indwelling us. And we have the scriptures indicating the Holy spirit has come to abide in us forever in our hearts. And the way he poured out, the way the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly was through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Father had a plan for us. The, the Son executes the plan. Part of that plan is that Jesus would baptize us in the Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. He would identify us with himself by means of God, the Holy Spirit. And that would also come with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which the Lord Jesus has given us. This is figured in a... In a a prefiguring of this when Jesus breathes on them, on the disciples before he ascends and tells them receive the Holy Spirit. He does this. And then he also says, okay, you're going to have to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. It's not a contradiction. It's a foreshadowing. It's a prefigurement when Jesus does this. He saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, which Holy Spirit he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. And he did this. He saved us so that having been justified by God's grace, by that one's grace, we would become heirs. He didn't save us so that we wouldn't just wouldn't go to hell, which is an important motivation to consider Christ. Don't misunderstand. He didn't save us just so that we would go to heaven. It's not just geography, hot geography or pleasant geography. That's not the reason why stated here, he saved us. It's much better than that. It's not so that you're in a cage somewhere uh, out of the frying pan and just his little pet. You're not his pet. You're not his, his, uh, uh, his little ornament. It's much more than this. He saved you so that after having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs. We would be those that inherit according to the hope of eternal life. And what do we have to inherit? Well, in Christ, we inherit all things with him because as Hebrew says, he's the heir, the one who inherits all things. We have become fellow heirs with Christ in Romans 8. So it's, it's, he saved us so that he could give us our inheritance because he wants to promote us, because he wants to exalt us, because he wants to give us a share in his eternal glorious project of, of magnifying righteousness and truth of magnifying himself. This is what you're called for. And so salvation takes on a whole new, if you thought, well, salvation is I'm not going to hell or salvation is I get to go to heaven or, or something like this. No, it's, it, it's all the way to the concept of the inheritance, the concept of which the apostle Paul prays in um, Ephesians chapter one, that the eyes of your heart will be open to know the riches of our inheritance among the saints. And it's not a well-known doctrine, but here it is the reason why we are saved. It is the purpose for which God saved us. He wants to exalt us. The lights are flickering and that gives us a sense that perhaps this message will be one of my shorter messages given the internet connectivity, but we will persist if the Lord allows us to. So we have when, on what basis, how, and why he saved us. He saved us. Why did he do it? To give you inheritance. On what basis did he do it? Not your righteousness, but his mercy. When did he do it? When his kindness and love for mankind appeared. All right. Some will say, well, there you have it. Only the sins of the elect were poured out on Christ and judged. He, when he, when the kindness and love for mankind appeared, that has to be when he did it. But the truth is that Jesus is the propitiation for not our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And first John chapter two, verse two, he is the savior of the world in the sense that he provided salvation for all men and what men must do in hearing the gospel quickened by the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They must trust in Jesus Christ. When I say quickened, I don't mean given regeneration. I mean equipped to understand and respond. All right. So then the, so what verse 
8 says, it is a faithful word, and this looks back to what he just did in verses 4 through 7. And concerning these things, I want you to insist. Titus, you have to insist on these things. It's not your works, it's God's work. It's not your righteousness, it's God's righteousness. It's not so that you would just um, be able to live however you want, it's so that you would receive the inheritance. That's the reason for these things, and so you insist on these things, so that they will be intent to engage in good works. The outcome of this sound teaching by God's design in verses four through seven is that the hearers will engage in sound works and good works. They will be about the business of our father. Why? Because you know that you're saved to receive an inheritance and the inheritance is, is the, is the, the purpose and it's involved in the works that God has for you to do. I contend that when you and I get to the judgment seat of Christ, We will not be worried about how many cities we'll be governing after the parables or what our crowns look like. I believe with all my heart that greater and greater intimacy with our Savior, with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit will be what we crave the most. And intimacy and my understanding of the coming kingdom comes with access and closeness to the work of his administration. That's why we build with his materials, gold, silver, precious stones in 1 Corinthians 3, because we want to receive back what we've invested. In other words, be about the word, be about the works of the word, spend your life, the precious moments of your life with this as your focus, for God's sake, with with Christ above at the right hand of the father as your focus. And so you're in the word and in the works of the word, because you are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. So this motivates us, you see, to be engaged in good works. I want you to insist on these things. If I think of God's grace to me and his so great salvation, and I really think about it, I'm kind of a, of a stinker if I'm not grateful to him for that. And I know that that's a problem. I've talked about this some before. I'm not really thinking about um, his, his kindness to me and his grace to me when I'm feeling sorry for myself. But we get hung up in these things. And I don't feel grateful. I know as a concept what the pastor has said that I have this so great salvation, but I just don't feel it. I just don't feel the gratitude I should have, but I do fully believe it. And I I do assent and believe in my so great salvation, but I just don't, I don't have that gratitude. That is a matter of intimacy with God. It is a matter of closeness with him and your study of his word and your prayer life and exhaling what he said to him in your, in your interaction in prayer. It's a, it's a deficiency in your walk with him and carrying out what his word says to do. The word of God is very much, very much an instruction manual. And the horror to me is the people that study the word of God so that they are fully aware of the instructions, but they never build the thing that is being uh, instructed. They're never carrying out what it says. This is again, James on being doers of the word. Now, make no mistake. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ as your savior, and you're willing to learn the word, but not do it, it doesn't mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean you're not regenerate. It doesn't mean you don't have eternal life. It doesn't mean you won't receive the portions of the inheritance that are guaranteed to us, like your resurrection body, the Holy Spirit has come as the earnest of the inheritance and many other things that are yours by virtue of your inheritance in Christ. But I do want you to understand if you're going to hear the word and study the word and become a student of the instruction manual and then not carry it out, you're wasting your life. And there is no doubt in my mind, you lack thanksgiving. You lack the joy of the spirit. You lack the blessings that God has for you in the walk. The walk is the work and the work is empowered by the spirit of God through the word of God. And the work is the grace of God through you. And there is no other avenue to it. And so this is the theme really of Titus is that they will be intent to engage in good works. It doesn't mean, well, I intended to, it means that it's our focus. We're, we're zoomed in on this. We're dialed in on this. What are the good works? It is the making of disciples. It is the asking God, this is the project your son has given me. How do I become part of this project? How can you use me? Oh God, in this work. I don't want to presume upon you, Heavenly Father, that I'm going to say how I'll go serve. God, you work in me what you want so that I can be successful in that work, in the, in the, in the, the work that you have for me. 
This is the Hebrews benediction of the great shepherd. I'll read it to you by way of review from our study of prayer. To the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. That's pastor in Latin. That's poimen in Greek and shepherd in English. That's what Jesus is, your, is your, your right pastor. Those of you that are worried about that. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Unpack that in your heart a little bit. It's a great devotion for you. Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Right before he says that benediction where God works in you this intent on good works. He tells you what he's talking about. In Hebrews 13, 15, through the Lord Jesus, then our great high priest, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and not neglect doing good and sharing with for with such sacrifices, believer priests with such sacrifices in our priesthood as believers, God is pleased. What, what, what do you say in verse 16? Do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. What is the, what are we talking about? Sharing for sharing's sake, the good works of helping the you know, the little Boy Scout uh, thing, do a good turn daily, they, they tell them. And so you help the little old lady cross the street. So you did your good turn for the day. It made me feel good inside. This is not the way the New Testament is written. It is not just making the world a better place if you can. Remember that? Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make the world a better place if you can. This is not a general sense of just doing good and scrubbing the stones to make, it, make them gleam. It's not just polishing your shoes so that then they're polished. This is the ministry of the gospel and making disciples of Jesus Christ that we're talking about. The sharing is with people so that you can share what they really need. The charity, as we rightly call Christian love toward non-believers, toward people in need, the sharing that God has called us to is a context of the love of God, his affection for mankind, so that you can share the real love of God in Jesus Christ. Feeding people so that they then live longer and go to the lake of fire is not the Christian mission of mercy and charity. And so we, we do have to insist on that. Now, does that mean that every conversation you have with someone has to be believe on Jesus? No, it is that every conversation is in prayer before God, directing toward, I'm looking toward the opportunity to show them Christ's love and then tell them what Christ did for them as the ultimate expression of his love. We're, we're on mission. We're, we're not just running the soup line. We're running the soup line, praying for these people, looking for ways to show God's love and ultimately tell them of the work of Christ. That's the evangelistic, mission-focused Christian life that we're talking about. There'll be an intent in Titus 3.8 to engage in good works, those who have believed in God. Now notice he doesn't say so that they can demonstrate that they have believed in God. He didn't say that so that at the end of their reformed experiment of life, they can at the end uh, know that their last moment, they were still trusting Christ so that at the end, they know they were part of the elect. No, it's those who've believed. They need to do the next step, which is to engage in the works that God has prepared for them. These things are good and profitable for men. Now, I said we're going to talk about dark things. It's uh, getting darker outside as, the, as we go. And so what dark things are we talking about? Well, Titus started with instructions to correct the Cretans. Remember, the problem with Crete is it's full of Cretans. For this reason, Titus 1.5, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so there's this setting in order in the description of elders. And then in verse 10 of Titus 1, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. That means, that means Israel. That means the Jews who are in rebellion against God, who have rejected their Messiah. 
who are going to, uh, to always dog all through Paul's ministry. This has been kind of the human enemy of his work, the human distractor, the human group that will stir up the crowds and, um, and cause a riot, make him have to go to the next city especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. And he talks about the the Epimenides, the great Cretan uh, joke, I'm lying. Now, the reason Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus and Titus to Crete here toward the end of his ministry, as we study in 1 Timothy, is because there is a positive side of teaching the word so that people can respond to God in faith, they can grow spiritually thereby, and then perform the works that require that level of maturity. But the negative side is that there are people that are trouble. There are people that are teaching false doctrines. They are gaining a following. And how does, how do people, how do you get a following for false doctrine? How does that happen? I contend it happens because people are, we are as a race, as a, as a species, rather silly. We are absurd. I wouldn't say absurd in the extreme necessarily, but we certainly are absurd. And so there is a problem with human susceptibility to deception. In fact, that's the problem we're in. There's a hurricane coming through Connecticut and Rhode Island today because human beings are susceptible to deception. The ground has been cursed that Adam was lord over. It was cursed because of his sin. And the curse of the ground involves hurricanes, tornadoes, and all kinds of horrible things that you know we're dealing with. So there's a problem. We're susceptible to deception. One deceiver that we struggle against is the inner flesh, the sinful nature with which you're born and which you will not be free from until you die physically. The resurrection body has no sin nature, but this present decaying, dying frame does. But there's the outer deceptor too, Satan, who's looking for someone to devour. How does Satan devour people like a roaring lion? He deceives them and they say, okay, I'll go his way. I'll subscribe to this false teaching. That's the devouring of the souls of men in 1 Peter 5. He's looking for anyone he can do that to. And he's got a whole network of demons that arrange this. And the Bible doesn't say how they communicate to us, but we do know from Timothy, there are doctrines of demons that people absorb. And so we've got an inside enemy. We've got an outside enemy called the world. That's my language, the cosmos diabolicus, the world system administered by Satan and his angels of deception of the souls of mankind, of the nations. And so we have these two key enemies that we're fighting. We talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is the prince of the power of the air orchestrating this world system. And so, yes, these are, these are the enemy. And so then we're very susceptible. Along comes the cultist knocking on the door with an interesting array of clothing, a short-sleeved dress shirt with a tie. I was taught never to do that. I've seen people do that, often engineers, but I was taught in etiquette class, (laughs) we don't wear a short sleeve dress shirt with a tie. When it's a short sleeve dress shirt, it's open collar. When it's a long sleeve dress shirt, it's a tie. Anyway, um, that's a bygone culture, I'm sure. But here come the cultists with their short sleeve dress shirt and their tie. Who cares what they're wearing? The problem is their message and their message is God loves you. Their message is we love you. Their message is we want to help you. But you just have to assent to a few things. There's a new prophet that came along that is going to contradict directly many of the things the Apostle Paul said. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to contradict what we have in Matthew through Revelation. And, uh, but, he's, but it's okay because it's a new revelation. Um, we love you and we want to help you and we want to bless you. Except that in this revelation, you're going to learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is not of the same essence as God the Father, that he is some sort of lesser being. He's a creation of God. You're going to hear this message from the short sleeve, dress shirt, black tie guy. He's going to tell you, if you listen carefully, if you probe it, he's going to say, well, um, something like, well, you know, it's okay if you want to say Jesus is God because of the places in the Bible you showed me. Uh, He's God to me. He's, and I'm not as high as Jesus is, but to say he's of the same essence as the father, that's the problem. And so what we need to do, they'll say, is say that uh, Jesus is um, our, our created being. Uh, furthermore, if you really dig into the ultimate worldview of the particular ministry uh, of deception that I'm talking about, they will tell you that your destiny is to become divine. You will become divinized. You will become God like Adam did, who became God the father. It's science fiction, but that's what they'll say. They got it in their book. And you will be, because you were good in the faith that they're claiming is of Christ, 
because you grew and you, you, you populated the kingdom as you're supposed to, you will get your own world where you can become God to administer the next, the next planet. And so it's a, it's a, it's a science fiction, it's, it's a space alien cult that says you are God in, 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 a, in a neophyte form. You're like a, you're like a, um, a God maggot or something. <laughs> well, I mean, what's the word for, you're a, you're a, uh, what's the word for um, larva? You're a God larva. You, if you do the, the stuff that we want you to do, you'll become God someday. And the, way, the summary is, as, as man is, God once was, and as God is, man one day will be. And, and that's what they're, that's their doctrine that they're sharing with you in contradiction to everything we have from Jesus Christ and his apostles built on the foundation of the apostles. I'm sorry, the prophets of the old Testament growing out the new Testament, growing out of the revelation of God who exists eternally, who is separated from creation in the sense that he's already present in Genesis one, one before he makes everything by fiat, by his word. And the spirit of God on the scene in that moment. And as we, the revelation unfolds, we meet the son of God who is present with the father in this creative work in contradiction to everything we have in the actual Bible. The new revelation has this, this, uh, this, uh, populating the planets, um, science fiction, uh, es- eschatology. I love science fiction. I love science fiction. I got to be careful with recommendations I made. There was a, a, a writer, um, in the forties and fifties named Robert Heinlein, really through the, through the mid 20th century. I love starship troopers. I had to read that in the army as well. I was suggested to read it. Fantastic novel of, uh, of leadership and in a science fiction kind of frame, really smart guy. He anticipated so many things in the forties that we didn't have. Uh, on the one hand, he's got people encountering pe- the, the people of Venus, like the, the Venus aliens. Cause there've been no space exploration when he's writing. On the other hand, they're talking on cell phones. And they've got, they've got laptops and, and, and microwave ovens and stuff. And he's writing in 1948. And so I love Robert Heinlein. And then I read his most famous book, which is a satanic attack on Revelation and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a counterfeit Christ called A Stranger in a Strange Land. And I had recommended Heinlein's juvenile novels, which are great because they were, they were tethered by Simon, and Schu- Simon Schuster's sons. And then Heinlein later wrote Stranger in a Strange Land became the most famous science fiction book of its time. And I, and I absolutely recommend no one ever read that book. And uh, Heinlein's dead now. And uh, he, if he believes what he writes, and I contend that he did, then he doesn't know Christ. And he has replaced Christ with a counterfeit. And um, the, the counterfeit, unsurprisingly, is a false Christ who gains, who, who redeems people through the act of sexual intercourse. That's Gnosticism. That's the idea of sex as the ultimate expression. That's Baalism. That's been the phallic cult problem throughout world history. Why am I talking about Robert Heinlein? Because I was talking about some other science fiction just a minute ago too. This science fiction cult that has you um, growing up and eventually becoming God, the father of a new planet um, is remarkably powerful remarkably gaining access and mainstream the billions of dollars in this cult, the, the temples raised in every city promoting this false doctrine that denies the Lord Jesus Christ that captivates unknowing people. The reason I'm talking about it is their method of conversion through conviction, the way they have been trained and successful in deceiving people and the people that are the, the, the little guy in the white dress shirt, is deceived himself and he's just replicating his own deception. The way they do it is with epistemology. They say you need to ask God and see if he doesn't settle your heart with a certain feeling of peace, a peaceful, easy feeling, you might call it. Settle your heart about if these things are true. Now let's don't do cognitive. Let's don't do archaeology. Let's don't do linguistics. Let's do, don't do all the tools that God gave us as his image bearers to check him out. Let's don't look at history as a tool of measuring God's behavior according to his design in his covenants with Israel. Let's don't do any of the rational work. Let's intuit emotionally and mystically if these things are so. 
And what people will claim is they just came, I've heard five or six uh, people in the last year say this is how they came to this new revelation of the, of the space um, alien uh, multiple world God the Father cult. The way they came to, uh, to subscribe to this, and they didn't understand any of that when they did, but was that this revelation came through this new prophet in the United States, and he wrote this book, and, it, it was, and the angel had appeared to him. And so he, he did this, and God kind of me- mediated that to their hearts. I just, I kind of feel that these things are so. In other words, we're susceptible to great deception. And now we're in Titus 3. Verse 9, but avoid, Titus, foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and quarrels about the namas, quarrels about the law. It, it's, it's actually a, an adjective, law, so quarrels, lawly quarrels. But I believe it is talking about the Mosaic law. Now, the word avoid is at the end of the clause, and it is periistemi. It's this word right here. P-E-R-I-I-S-T-E, long E, the eta, M-I, periistemi. And it's two words jammed together, as will often be done, and it has a technical sense that you can't get from its etymology. Peri is around, and histemi is to stand. And so, like a lot of teenagers with their phones out, it can mean to stand around. Now, to, to stand around. What are you guys doing? Just standing around? I believe Slim Pickens had a question about that once. You guys are just standing around. All right. So, that's a static meaning, but that's not what it means by the Koine period as it's used very often. It can mean to surround, to encompass, but it can also, it took on another meaning to move around. Meaning, I'm going to use that peri sense and just add this word, and, and it's, a, it's kind of a, an idiomatic thing that's going on in the Koine period. It means to negotiate. It means to avoid. It means to dodge the, the obstacle. You negotiate around it. I've had a lot of firsthand experience with this. We're not going to spend time on that. That's an interesting thought. Let that pass right by. I'm not going to spend time on this thing because it's crazy. Because you might have a lot of emotion and a lot of mystical insight into your feelings about how you feel about this false teaching that you're proposing, but I'm just not going to go there. That's what this word means. Foolish controversies. Moros, where we get the word moron. Foolish, it means foolish in in Greek. You avoid these things. You negotiate around them. You dodge them. You don't need to spend time in it. What this means, now notice, this is how you respond to false teaching, false doctrines. You, you move around it. I'm not saying that discernment ministries that have arisen um, out there, that I, I, like Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults, that examine all these cults and talk about the false teachings out there and so you can understand it. I'm not saying that these are the wrong thing. I'm saying that um, for the most part, we shouldn't major in this. We, we avoid it. We're dodging these things because why? Why do you not want to become a super duper student of these things, unless you are super duper grounded in the word because we're susceptible and easily taken in because we can be easily deceived. And so we guard our heart, as we say. And so this is why I believe Paul's summary word for responding to false teaching is you avoid it. The, the church, church history is full of the story of the body of Christ uh, avoiding denials of Christ's deity of arguing and responding to detractors to say that, um, that, that, that foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and quarrels about the law are to be rejected, and here's why. And we've fought intellectually and often with our own sacrifice of, of life and, and, and property. We, the church, the body of Jesus Christ, those believers on earth, have suffered through 2,000 years of the attacks of Satan in various means, sometimes through government with the persecutions by Decius and uh, Diocletian and these, these uh, types of things, the Neronian persecution and all those that have followed. But then also we have suffered um, the, the, the rebuke of the intellectual world for being fools and rubes and, and, um, and easily deceived ourselves into our, you know, our easy God is the God of creator and holder of everything. But um, what I'm saying is the way you successfully negotiate these things as the 
early church apostolic fathers and then the apologists and those that came after them, the way you deny access or purchase in these false teachings is first of all, you dodge them and you put your finger back in the Bible. You don't dodge the scriptures. You hold fast to the scriptures, which gives you your context for understanding why do I not believe in the space um, propagation cult of Jesus isn't God. We'll call our church Jesus church, but we will say Jesus isn't God in the same essence as the Father. So, so you avoid it because we're easily dece- deceived and you don't really have time. You know, the Bible's a big book. Um, I, I've often spoke to people that would say, I, I've read the Bible. I've read it many times. Cover to cover, I've read the Bible. Most of the people I've heard say that are from the South. And usually that's, that's, the, that's the preface for some deni- denial of what the scriptures are or what they teach um, or, or the sufficiency of scripture. It's good, but we got to have something more like tradition or, or something else. And uh, in all these cases, <clears throat> the, the avoidance is, um, is in order to go back to the text and all the, 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 the distractions from the word. It's to go back to the text and make that my focus. It is the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to, to dwell in us richly so that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our spiritual life and our spiritual epistemology, our ability to think the way God thinks, is directly and constantly dependent on the intake of God's word. And so getting distracted in the contrary messages in Paul's day, apparently it keeps coming up. There was this problem of the genealogies. We aren't really sure what that refers to, but there are two or three suggestions. They all worked for me. If we're talking about the law, well, you have genealogies in Genesis about where all the people came from. Well, what's the point of that? That's so you'll know the God who is the God of everybody, the God who made everything has picked this one family and he's going to bring redemption through this one family, Jesus from Abraham. And over, way oversimplifying the Old Testament, but, but, but the genealogies are to show you where everyone's from so that all of the world is in common rejection of the creator in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 10. That's the idea of the genealogies. And then how did this happen? Genesis 11, the, the, the Tower of Babel rejection. We know where everyone came from. The reason for these genealogies is not so that you can trace back to where you came from and make an issue of that. And now that's starting to sound like racism. That's starting to sound like uh, a, a fruitless pursuit. Do I think it's wrong to go to Ancestry.com and do genealogy studies? I don't think that's wrong. Back to my my whipping the cult I've been beating up on all day and all the genealogy, but it's, it, it's probably a reference to the Genesis genealogies and something that law teachers are doing with that to establish authority or to, uh, to teach some other false doctrine. You take something true from scripture and what Satan does in Matthew four and Luke four, you twist it. The, the false teacher will twist it. And so that could be what the genealogies are. It could be, uh, the, the genealogies of the teachers, like I come from this teacher and this teacher comes from that teacher. And so this is our authority, but understand every teaching has to have a basis in authority and the higher the authority, the greater will be the acceptance or the, the, the wisdom of accepting that teaching. So you don't go back to what people speculate about, about passages of scripture. You go to the scriptures. Now, why did God give us those genealogies? So we would know him. So we would know that he was the creator of all and it's about him, right? And so the, it's, it's, it's digging into the arcane. It's, it's making arcane uh, predictions or presumptions about true things and going beyond what the text says. And when you see it, eh, you, you should kind of get a sense of, well, this is, a, this is a fool's errand, what you're doing. As it said here, foolish controversies, genealogies and strife, quarrels about the law. Notice there in this false teaching problem that Paul's referring to, you have these problems, uh, strife and quarrels and controversies, um, but it's with genealogies and referencing the law. All right, because these are useless and empty. Notice that Paul says that this is stupid. It's a waste of time. 
You only have so much time. So, I mean, at the end of your discernment ministry work, you should be able to say, so after giving you the whole story of the, um, the colonization of space, man becomes God cult, it's foolish. It's, it's worthless because there's nothing to it. There's no God in this. There's the enemy of God behind it. So um, don't, don't get involved with these things. He says, dodge it because these things are useless and empty. Have you ever had the challenge to waste your time on these things? Have you ever had this, this problem? I've seen it a lot. People just want, some people are just, they, they're driven to the, to the nitinoid thing that they want to make that their, uh, they, they pick a, an obscure phrase or word in the scriptures. They then make a speculation about it because they, they say the Holy Spirit occurs it to them or something. They mystically intuit something about it. And then they make it like their thing and it's their hobby horse they want to ride. And if you go back to the origin of it, it's like, that's not even what the text is doing. That's a misuse of language. Let's study the language. So Paul is, uh, is merciless about these problems. And he's got several places we'll look at next hour in the New Testament that talk about these problems. Then he discusses the people behind these false teachings. Reject a high, uh, hereticon. What's a hereticos? Well, that's where you get the word heretic, but it doesn't mean what we mean by heretic now, where someone was a believer, but then they deny Christ or something, a heretic as in the, in the nuanced meaning through church history. This word hereticos is somebody who is a factious person, a divisive person, someone that causes division. Now I had somebody that's focused on nitinoid minutia, speculation, weirdness, try to tell me that I don't, I don't divide. I don't cause division. But the, that in context, no, the, the weird teaching does cause division. It'll always cause division. And so that's, so when someone says, well, go back to the text and, and undo your, your tethering to this false look at how to handle the text, and that'll solve your problem. That's the end of the conversation if we won't do it. But reject a division-making man after a first and second warning very similar to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, where you have to take someone who is, uh, who has wronged someone and the first, the, the person's wrong goes to them and then they bring a witness. And then if they won't hear the, the second witness, then they are, uh, rejected. They, you tell it to the church, they're rejected. So you reject a division making man is the literal of hereticos after a first and second warning. And here's why knowing that such a man has been perverted. He's been perverted, perfect verb, and is sinning, present tense verb, and therefore he is self-condemned, being self-condemned. Self-condemned is a, um, it's a, they think it's a Pauline coined word. The, the lexicographers don't find it elsewhere. Um, it's autos, self, or, or I, the, just the pronoun, uh, him, um, which means self most often, not I, but him. Uh, kata, preposition often used for according to the standard of or above or over and then or down upon and then kretos is the word is the main word to judge or condemn and so throw all those together and we think it just means that he's he has condemned himself by his uh, insistence on false teaching which causes division so you know that such a man has been perverted he is in sin he is sinning being self-condemned. And how do you know this? Apparently it starts with the arrogance of rejecting the scriptures, rejecting the Pauline or apostolic word of God and embracing some other authority to try to reinterpret it or destroy it. And um, well, this is the main thing you should be thinking of in this instance, genealogies and false teaching about the law. So again, this is a common theme in the pastoral epistles. And so look at the two things he says, avoid the foolish controversies and reject the division making man. So you deal with false doctrines and divisive persons in the same way. There is the rejection. Now that word reject, I wanted to share with you about that word. It is paraiteomai, P-A-R-A-I-T-E-O-M-A-I, this word to reject. And it's a challenging word because uh, it has pretty much two meanings and we can't really figure out how to get those two meanings in the same origin, and you don't have to. One meaning of this word that we're translating reject here is to uh, request, to make an appeal, to ask for something. And um, 
I think it comes to mean reject or deny by begging off. Uh, can we please stop this? And it, it's a gentle way of saying out. <laughs> it's a rejection. Now notice that the apostle Paul is the apostle of parakaleo. I encourage you. Often his commands are issued as exhortations by way of encouragement, but they are his instructions. Um, he is the apostle of reject in this soft word for a rejection. And so um, reject this person after first and second warning. Now, why do we want to reject them? We don't. Why do you? It's hard. It hurts. The apostle Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians 5. And there is the difficult rejection of removing someone from your midst for gross personal lifestyle sin because of the denying the gospel and the, the, the destruction of the family's witness, the body of Christ's witness in that instance. And so you remove them, but it's for their recovery so that they'll be turned over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. So the saving of their soul. Um, and that's not talking about whether they go to heaven. It's talking about that their life will be restored to its, um, its purpose in this phase of life. It's a phase two salvation. But um, anyway, the way you deal with these things is you avoid and you reject. And uh, it hurts for me to do that. I'm the guy and God knows my weaknesses and Satan probably does too, or, or whatever, you know, low level functionary is working on me, trying to attack us. I mean, um, you know, screw tape or wormwood or however that works. I am a person that doesn't like to say no. It has dogged me in every work I've done. It was difficult as a cadet. It was difficult as uh, an armor officer. It was dif it's difficult in everything I do. And, um, and I do say it, but it's hard for me to do it without going into um, over overdrive and just being gentle and saying no. And you could see how this would be a weakness that could be easily exploited. Now, I think a lot of men are like this because a lot of men are softies and they want to see people thrive and We'd rather see joy than uh, sorrow and, and all that. And um, so I, it's good to know yourself. Uh, Shakespeare, to thine own self be true and you can be false to no man. Uh, Polonius's advice to his son, I think, in Hamlet. Um, that's a biblical idea. Know your weaknesses. And so um, this is very helpful for a young, you can see a young pastor going into this kind of ministry. You have a responsibility to avoid the false teaching and to reject those who divide by teaching it. And that's how we have to be. And I, um, I think I have an okay track record in this church being this way. And uh, I try not to be over the top with my uh, avoidance and rejection. Uh, <laughs> reject with extreme prejudice. You know, I try not to, uh, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Mike just said that's what I have him for. Uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a challenge, but we're going to finish Titus. When I send Artemis or Tukakos to you, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis. Paul will often call his men in and I want you to come spend time with me. Come, be diligent to come with me for there I have decided to spend the winter. I call this a doctrine of Christian co-location and it's all through Paul's letters. If we want to know Paul and want to know how to, how, what kind of Christian he is, he wants to be with his people. He wants his people to be with him and it's important to him for co-location. And so over this last year with us having to be away more, much more than we ever would have wanted to and thankful for the ability to spend time with my mother-in-law before she went home, um, we, we felt this greatly, this desire for co-location. If you don't have this, you're not in line with the apostle Paul or therefore the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be together. And if you're like, well, I just don't like getting around those people. Maybe you've got a personality hiccup or you're struggling with something, but the understand the norm, the design is that the family wants to assemble Thanksgiving, for example, by illustration with your family, getting together, uh oh, getting together with your family for for Thanksgiving is not supposed to be a beating. It's supposed to be a blessing. And um, now our family Thanksgiving, we don't have beatings, but there will be spankings generally, uh, but just for younger children. And, um, but no, the, the point is that uh, you, you're dreading getting together with family. Oh, I hate it. That's not the design. That's not the intent. And um, if you feel that way, if you're struggling, you should probably do some self-assessment. Where am I screwed up on this? And then once you have fully assessed yourself with the objectivity, the spirit of God gives you through the word and you've done some self-judgment and you've confessed your sins, then you can look and see, well, where's the, where's the speck in my brother's eye? What else is going on that makes this so difficult? And, um, that's how we will bear with one another. When I send Artemis to Tuchicus, the doctrine of Christian hospitality on mission is in verse 13. Zenos, the lawyer and Apollos 
diligently send on their way. The command is to send them on their way with all diligence. What does that mean? Well, so nothing to them is lacking. So when you send them, it isn't just, hey, you guys go. Paul wants you to go back to the work. Go with your bellies full, with your, uh, with your provisions replenished, with the, whatever you need to equip you for the mission. That's what he's talking about. Diligently sent on their way in such a way so that nothing to them is lacking. So they're coming to you as a waypoint. You're coming, they're coming to Crete on their way to somewhere else. And Apollos, we know him, right? He may be headed uh, west over to Corinth uh, from Crete, but send them on their way so that they lack nothing. And now the summary of Paul's letter to Titus. Now they are to learn, that is even those of us, our people, to lead in or engage in good works. They are to learn to proceed in their lives in good works to meet the pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The Christian who will not study the word is not equipped by the word to do the works that God wants him to do. The Christian who studies the word but won't do it is also unfruitful, but for a different reason. It is that laziness has attacked us in the follow through phase instead of the intake of the word phase. But laziness is the destruction of your spiritual life. And it is the denial of the wisdom of God. Finally, Paul will issue his farewell uh, word of encouragement. All those who are with me, greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege of our short and fast survey of the epistle to Titus. Thank you for Paul's equipping of Titus and the effect that that had on the body of Christ in Crete. Father, the, the effects of Titus's ministry in equipping the, the Cretan believers to do the works that you have for them and the power of your spirit through your word, this ministry of this work, Father, we have no idea how that became something that has built into our lives, but we see certainly the need for them to grow has prompted Paul to write this letter that the Holy Spirit inspired the words, every word from that pen of the Apostle Paul. We have been equipped to think through with you what we're to be about. God, we ask for your strength to do the work you have for us, just as the writer of Hebrews prayed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.